temperature at the observatory, 30 degrees Celsius, relative humidity, 76%. Very hot weather warning in place. And that was the news and the weather from us here at RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Janice. On today's program, we're talking about how to provide better care for the needy. After two brothers with intellectual disabilities were found dead in a public housing flat last week. It's believed their primary caregiver was their elderly mother, who was admitted to hospital in May. Authorities say there was no record of the family seeking help from the social welfare department or NGOs. Welfare Secretary Chris Sun has pledged to beef up support services in the wake of the tragedy. And a new hotline service has been rolled out for caregivers. So how can we ensure better support for the most vulnerable members of society and for the caregivers on whom they depend? After 9.40, we'll talk to an infectious diseases expert about the flu situation. And at 9.55, we'll get an update on the Asian Games. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page. Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us, uh, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to a kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Alan Din, lecturer at the Chinese University's Department of Social Work and Bess Lam, Associate Professor at Xuyan University's Department of Counseling and Psychology. And in a moment, we'll also be joined by Alex Lam, the Chairman of Patients voices. Good morning, Mr. Din. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Lam. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, Mr. Din, what do you think of this tragedy? What issues or problems does it highlight? Um, I think uh, you can easily see that the support to uh, this kind of family office is not enough. And even though you say that it is a hidden family, uh, maybe uh, the social workers or the government uh, may not see uh, them or they, they're not taking the initiative uh, to uh, uh, to seek help. But uh, I, I do believe, uh, actually, uh, we can take a more in- initiative to try to uh, help this family. For example, uh, if you uh, look at the report, actually, uh, the, the medical social worker actually has kept get in touch with the lady uh, when she was admitted in the hospital. I guess at this stage, at least, uh, the social worker uh, can look into the needs of the lady in a family perspective, can try to know more about the situation. And then, obviously, uh, the, if, they, if she was sens- sensitive enough, she will see that there's a need to, uh, to take care of the two brothers. Right. I, I find it actually um, quite incredible that uh, uh, the lady has been hospitalized since um, May this year. So it is not a matter of weeks, it's um, a few months already. Yet um, she didn't realize that um, uh, her two sons needed help um, at home. Do, um, do you have any idea why, why this happened? And, and nobody came to check on her, to ask her you know, whether she, she needs support. Uh, definitely, I guess there will be interest try to look into the reasons behind actually what happened. I wait and, but for, from my uh, points of view, you know, because I, as according to the report, uh, the two sons actually before they are also patients of HA. So sure, there will be court about the two sons. Of course, they have defrauded uh, a poor man, uh, but at least there should be record and also the report of record of this lady. So. Uh, 
I guess if we will try to take more action, at least uh, we can have a more clear picture about uh, the family, and then we can spot out the needs of the family at that time. So even though uh, maybe assume maybe the lady has not told the social worker about uh, uh, the two sons' situation, uh, if but our social workers ourselves should be more sensitive, should be more alert, uh, uh, should try to know about the family situation instead of just look into one lady's situation. And then, then maybe we can spot out the list and we try to help out and maybe we can avoid the tragedy. All right. So let's go to Dr. Lam. And Dr. Lam, what do you think? Do you think uh, um, these medical social workers, uh, they should they need to be more sensitive or, or even like frontline medical staff, they need to um, increase their sensitivity? Right. Thanks for asking. Uh, I, I I have an additional perspective uh, uh, in addition to Dr. Uh, uh, Din uh, as well. Um, um, so actually, the uh, the the siblings uh, go, uh, went uh, did check on these uh, brothers uh, according to what I heard uh, from the what I read from the newspaper uh, is uh, the, it, it, but then the, the two brothers didn't bother to open the door for the siblings to come in to to, to check on them. Uh, so I, I was wondering, like, because of the, um, I, I'm not sure how severe the intellectual disability of these brother have, uh, but uh, maybe the relationship between uh, the other people, but and also uh, these two brothers uh, is also very important because, uh, you know, like sometimes uh, patients um, uh, with mental illnesses or intellectual disability, they might not want to accept help from the others who they don't uh, really have good relation or rapport. Uh, um, or yeah, they or they don't trust. Uh, so I, I'm just wondering, like uh, maybe bec- um, there could be some more work that before uh, earlier that could be done to the family, like uh, providing uh, community support or uh, to to prevent such a, a tragedy. Right, and according to the welfare secretary Chris Sun, uh, there was uh, no record of the family seeking help from the social welfare department or NGOs. Um, Dr. Lam. How do you help people who who don't ask for it? Right, uh, it's really hard because <laughs> uh, you know, uh, especially the carers, uh, the mother uh, in this case. Uh, I I I would uh, imagine it's uh, stressful. Uh, to handle, to to manage, uh, to uh, people with uh, intellectual disability at a time, uh, and he uh, she was sick as well uh, at the moment. Uh, so um, so the, the we, it's important to uh, take care of the carers, the caregivers, uh, who who would be able to uh, more at taking more initiative to seek help, uh, professional help for mental health first. And then uh, to try to get uh, uh, to reach out to these uh, carers or caregivers so that uh, we can reach out to their family who have mental illnesses as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, Dr. Din, you have anything to add? Uh, I really doubt about what the secretary has said. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe in in a, in a short period, maybe uh, the family not asking for help, but for the long years. For all the years uh, since uh, maybe uh, when the, the brothers are very young, I'm pretty sure that their social workers have come in contact with this family, and uh, and also one more very important thing is, uh, uh, the two brothers has been the patient of the HA. So even though they have defrocked uh, uh, the appointment, and uh, according to the HA policy, uh, uh, I guess at least uh, they have they have to try to try to find out the reasons why they default appointment, try to find out whether they still need to service at that time. So I'm not sure whether the HA had 
done enough to make sure the well-being and safety of, of, of the brothers. So uh, I think at that point also uh, uh, remind us that uh, for, for HA, if there's a patient that they have default uh, appointment, they, have, they should be trying try their best to find out what happened and to make sure that actually uh, they are still looked after properly. Yes, well, and another um, angle is that um, uh, I think the family is on social welfare. Uh, I believe that the mother uh, needs to go and buy groceries and um, and she's receiving welfare. So uh, could the SWD, uh, I mean, know a bit more about um, the situation of the mother as well as the two sons and uh, flag an alert? Um, to to the relevant um, uh, departments or NGOs, uh, they are um, they they are they live in Samal Peng, so I gather that there are a number of NGOs around that area. Surely there's a family service, and um, the uh, social workers can go for a home visit, but n- none of these happened. So um, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. Alan Din, yeah. Yes. So, uh, because uh, the family is welfare recipients, so uh, whenever there's a review of uh, welfare, CSSA, actually, uh, the social welfare department, they will start in contact with the mother, maybe. And uh, usually, they'll try to conduct home visits uh, to make sure uh, whether there's any change in the conditions of the family, uh, whether uh, the welfare needs are justified. I think at that point, act is also a very... Uh, golden opportunity for the social welfare department uh, to check out whether there's any hidden needs uh, of the family. So maybe they have missed a very important moment because as, as far as I know, uh, most of the time they will do a home visit. Of course, sometimes they will ask the lady to come to the office uh, to provide the information. Even though uh, they do not go to the they do not go to, uh, to the home of the lady, they still have the chance to ask more about the family details. So I think that is also a very important uh, moment uh, for the social welfare department to check out whether there's any hidden needs of any, any people. Right. And uh, Dr. Lam, earlier, uh, Mr. Jin, who's saying that uh, he believed the hospital authority uh, didn't do enough. What's your view on the, the role of the hospital authority? Could it have done more? Right. Uh, I, I uh, For now, uh, I think the... Um, there's a lot that uh, the HA can do, uh, but there's also um, limited resources, obviously. Uh, it's also the problem that uh, that are affecting a lot of societies around the world as well, how to take care of the uh, mental illnesses and also their caretakers who are often uh, having burned out. Uh, so I think they can uh, set up a committee uh, to uh, provide more uh, prevention instead of, inter- uh, well, of course, in addition to intervention, like what Dr. Dean has said, uh, like uh, more uh, uh, social uh, follow-up by social workers and uh, professionals. Uh, but then uh, also the uh, community uh, uh, resources, such as like uh, folk, um, like a peer support group for the, uh, uh, the mental health carers, the caregivers, uh, so that they can join these groups. Maybe they, it's like neighbors helping neighbors, like, uh, if they know each other uh, in the community or in a peer support group uh, in the first place, maybe the other carers can do some help. Um, in addition to uh, what the other like siblings can do, maybe the, the siblings of these brothers didn't really have a close relationship with these two brothers as well. So it's really essential for having a rapport between the uh, care, um, the the, who, the one who can help and also the uh, mental illnesses, the All people right. with mental 
All right. Uh, we're also uh, now joined on the line by Alex Lam, the chairman of Patients' Voices. Uh, good morning, Mr. Lam. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us uh, on the program. And now, now some people have questioned uh, why frontline medical staff didn't follow up on the uh, mother in this tragedy we're talking about this morning to, to find out more about her two uh, intellectually uh, disabled sons. Um, Mr. Lam, are you surprised that hospital staff didn't manage to get the information out of the elderly woman? Well, I, I, I cannot say I, I'm not surprised, but uh, it is uh, really not uh, the duty for, for uh, frontline medical staff to um, take up this um, obligation or duty to to ensure that uh, they are taken care of uh, at home, because um, they simply have uh, no uh, such uh, obligations to 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 manage their family business, uh, the patient's family business. So presumably, you know, um, they they go to hospital, they they get their medical attention. They get the drugs and the patient go home and is for the family member or the carer to take care of the, um, the, the, the living of the um, uh, patients of uh, mental illness. Right. Uh, however, so, I, yeah. I, understand, yeah. I understand that the HA does provide a, uh, a service called outreach uh, to psychiatric patients. Uh, I, I read there the report saying that um, they have um, something like 200,000 uh, number of such um, um, uh, visits uh, to to uh, mental patients, uh, but I think the the situation like this, the the this tragedy, has nothing to do with the the outreach service because uh, it is apparently not the fundamental um, uh, purpose of uh, providing this service. So I, I think the duty is more uh, like uh, on the um, the uh, social welfare department. To, to ensure that uh, when when they um, 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 seek uh, assistance, uh, especially uh, um, um, financial assistance, uh, according to the, the um, medical condition, that the SFD uh, will also look into um, whether, apart from uh, money, whether the family has other needs. Right, but, but usually, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but then usually when, for example, an elderly person is admitted into hospital, don't uh, frontline medical staff usually ask the elderly person, do you live by yourself? Uh, do, you, do you have anybody I need to contact? Are those uh, usual, normal, I mean, normal questions? Or, or well, there could be a social worker. I think it's something for, yeah. for, for a doctor to answer, not, not by myself. Right. So, um, uh, any of you, uh, do, would you know when uh, the medical social worker could step in? So, for example, this uh, elderly woman was admitted in May. Uh, she might have uttered something about her two sons or she might not. But um, I guess um, in most of these cases, the medical social worker would not sort of come up next to her bed and said, you know, do you have any family situations that we should be aware of uh, and we can lend support? Um Either Best Lamb, Allenzin, or Alex Lamb. Do you know any any service like that in in the X-ray system? Actually, uh, usually it's the doctor to decide whether social worker should be referred. And of course, the doctor will talk to the lady uh, to know more about uh, her, her situation to decide whether uh, uh, there's any welfare risk, and then call the social worker. Actually, this is all right. And uh, let's. Do my, my understanding um, is that. Uh, okay, Mr. Lam. Yeah. Okay. 
unless you approach the uh, medical social worker, they will not come to your bed and ask if you need the, the service. So, so it's for yes, the, yes. Uh, so, so okay, Mr. Din. So, according to what Mr. Lam is saying, it's for the patients to uh, request uh, to see a, a, to see a medical social worker. It's not uh, for the doctor uh, to refer the patient to a uh, medical social worker. No. Is that correct? I mean, there's a both situation. At uh, the first situation, is you can approach, you can ask for uh, uh, a social worker uh, to to help to uh, meet your welfare needs. But there's also another situation. So the doctor they see the welfare needs of the the lady, and then uh, he he will take the uh, decisions to ask for the social worker to look at what happened. And after all, the final decisions is rest on uh, the doctor usually. Okay, so in this case, um, since the patient is um, an elderly lady and uh, she might not be able to talk a lot, um, uh, how how could doctors be more alert uh, to to see the condition of um, such a patient and and offer help? I mean, bearing in mind that. Um, uh, HA doctors are always very busy. They only have a few minutes, um, you know, next to her bed. Um, Alex Lam, as um, you know, someone from Hong Kong Patients Voices, uh, how could we um, communicate more to uh, these patients who are probably not that willing to talk about their families, but there is a very important need that, you know, needs to be served? Um, re remember, just months ago, um, the government uh, established a new law uh, to, to ensure that um, uh, child abuse uh, um, will be prevented by imposing duties on certain professionals, including teachers, social workers, and they even try to put such duty on doctors to, to make sure that uh, when the, they see possible uh, child abuse case, um, they have to take a positive action uh, to make, either make report or to do certain things to make sure that it won't happen. Uh, in, in hospitals, it is um, difficult to impose such duty on the medical staff to, to make sure that, uh, uh, because their primary primary duty is to, to make sure that the patient in the hospital are being taken care of. Uh, there appears uh, no guideline or a strict uh, regulation to, to make sure that they have to make an inquiry as to whether uh, the patient has a duty to, to take care of someone who is uh, underprivileged or who is uh, disabled or intellectual um, disabled. Uh, there's no such um, requirement. So um, I'm not sure in future whether HA will have to um, make such an initial inquiry when they admit a patient uh, for a long period of time that uh, such an inquiry will include uh, whether the patient uh, is, is the primary carer of uh, um, children, uh, primary carer of a uh, um, uh, mentally disabled um, uh, person or as their family members, uh, to, to make sure that those people at home will be um, noted and uh, assistance will be provided. Uh, so say, for example, if we, uh, like I'm a lawyer, if I work in the criminal court and I see, you know, my client is going to jail, I will definitely ask if if he or she is going to jail, whether you know he needs the help to take care of the family member, and they have the children at home, waiting them to to go home. 
All right. Uh, let's go to uh, Mr. Din, because I, I know you're just going to stay with us for a few more minutes. Um, we, we've looked at the, the, okay. the problems here. Um, what suggestions do you have? I mean, the, the government just launched the Care the Carers campaign yesterday. They have a new hotline. How useful will this be? The hotline uh, will not be useful in this case because uh, when the, uh, the uh, I mean the, when the client and the case has no motivation to ask for help, obviously you can imagine they will they will not make the phone call. So in this kind of case, hotline may not be useful. I'm not saying the hotline is totally not useful, but for those cases which are uh, I mean the client has motivation to ask for help, of course it is useful. But in this kind of case, uh, we cannot rely on the hotline. Instead, uh, we have to take more initi initiative to find out those hidden needs. As I said, uh, it, both the social welfare department and also the hospital authority may have to do more to try to find out, to try to identify identify this hidden situation or needs. I'm sure they will they will have the information. They will have the chance, as I said, right? this is different kind of uh, situations. They will need to contact uh, the client. They will need to know more about the information for the client. Maybe uh, they should do more. And and uh, from from the social uh, from work and uh, yes, uh, Alex Lab, please. You have anything to add? Well, if not, uh, maybe one final question for Alan Din. Um, uh, social workers, um, you know, serve many, many clients. Uh, they could be children, elderly, and uh, disabled. And I guess, um, you know, from the situation of the two brothers, um, from their very young days, uh, they must have gone to, um, uh, you know, an education yes. institution for the intellectually disabled. They might have been looked after by teachers and also social workers. So they, there are records somewhere in the system. So, yes, you know, my, my question is that, you know, with all those records in the system, nobody has flagged up the alert that um, these two uh, middle-aged uh, men uh, uh, are being taken care of by, um, by their very old mother. So, uh, you know, they need help. I, I guess, um, uh, yes, I do believe that what Bess Lam said about neighborhood issues are very important, neighbors helping neighbors. But uh, aside of that, I mean, in the NGO system, in family services, uh, could something more be done? Uh, you know, uh, in the situation of uh, people with intellectual disabilities, uh, usually when they go up, when they become adult, if they do not receive service. For example, they do not go to the shelter shop, they do not go to the daycare center, something like that. Actually, it's very easy for them to become hidden. Uh, you know, because they, they no longer become the, 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 the welfare recipients or service recipients. But one thing, uh, maybe this case uh, has taught us a lesson. Maybe uh, we have to try to, uh, 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 try to see if there's any system which can take care of them in a more long-term basis, lost, lost, lost up to the adolescence and then everything finished. Maybe uh, uh, we have to think out whether there's a, a kind of case manager system uh, and we try to uh, look at, uh, we try to look after the needs of these people uh, in a more long-term way because, you know, uh, in different ages, they may have different needs, right? Maybe, if, uh, of course, for these kinds of people, if they go to the middle age or they go to the elderly, there will be other needs. Uh, arising as well. So maybe there's a case manager system try to look after these uh, clients in the long term and uh, maybe it's a, it's, it's a way out. Right. right, and family services don't do that at all? Um, I mean, family, family services, service, they look, at, look after the mother as well as the two sons, right? 
Yeah. Agree. So uh, if uh, the mother uh, call, uh, ask for help for the family service, of course, as a family service social worker, so we have to look into the needs of the whole family, not only the mother. But in this situation, as uh, mentioned by the uh, government, and uh, maybe the, the mother has not asked for help uh, from the IFSC, uh, the family service. That's why. But if in any, in any stage, the mother has asked for help uh, from the family service. Of course, I think the social worker, uh, they should be alert. They should be more sensitive. All they right. should be alert. Uh, this family has a special situation. All right, Mr. We Din. have to look at. All okay, right, Mr. Yeah. Din, we're, we're about to take a break for the news. Thanks again for joining us on the program. That's uh, Alan Din, lecturer at the Chinese University's Department of Social Work. Mr. Lam and uh, Dr. Lam will continue our discussion for a bit longer after the news. And uh, just a reminder that after 9.40, we'll be speaking to epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling about the flu situation. And later on in the program, we'll get an update from our sports correspondent on the Asian Games. Now, if you uh, want to ask our guests questions or just share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RCHK Radio 3, or give us a call on 233-88266. And here's a quick look at the weather, mainly fine apart from isolated showers. Very hot during the day with highs of around 33 degrees in the urban areas. The very hot weather warning is currently in force. Right now it's 29 degrees, relative humidity 75%. It's now 9.30 with a new summary. Here's Stu Pryke. The International Red Cross is stepping up efforts to cope with thousands of ethnic Armenians fleeing the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh after Azerbaijani forces seized control. And in the United States, a New Jersey Senator, Bob Menendez, says he believes he'll be exonerated after U.S. officials charged him with taking bribes and using his position to help the government of Egypt. The former chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee told journalists he would remain as a senator despite calls for him to resign. And the Scottish actor, David McCullum, has has died at the age of 90 in New York. With a career spanning seven decades, he starred in The Great Escape and appeared more recently as a forensic examiner in the hit US crime drama NCIS. But he'll be best remembered for playing a Russian spy in the American 60s TV series The Man from UNCLE. And that's the news from RTHK. The National Day fireworks display will light up the sky over Victoria Harbour on October 1st. Starting at 9pm, the display will be visible over a large area of the city. People should be considerate and mind their safety in congested areas. Keep venues clean and respect public property. Try to use public transport and take note of special traffic arrangements. Vessel operators should pay special attention to marine safety. I'm Wise Mike, the smoke-free ambassador. I have a vision that one day no one smokes anymore. Gone are the days of people smoking near rubbish bins and pedestrians in the streets exposed to secondhand smoke containing cancer-causing substances. We can make that vision happen. Call 1833 183 to quit smoking now. Let's move towards a tobacco-free Hong Kong. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Bess Lam, Associate Professor at Xu Yan University's Department of Counseling and Psychology, and also Alex Lam, the Chairman of Patients' Voices. Now, um, before the news, uh, Dr. Lam, um, Alan Den, he, he mentioned um, case manager system. 
where uh, maybe a social worker can follow up on a uh, one of the needy needy individuals and, and uh, see uh, what what they actually need uh, in the long term. What's what's your thought on that uh, suggestion? Right. Uh, thank you. So um, I, I think it's useful and uh, it's needed. Uh, it's it's yeah, very uh, mandatory for a case worker, a social worker, to follow up at cases like these. But also, we can have different um, different uh, things that we can do as well uh, to um, support and also to help these individuals with uh, uh, intellectual disability disability to have a holistic development for long term. I, I actually very uh, keen on the long term development in. In, it, uh, in addition to the short term uh, or the uh, immediate uh, measures such as providing the hotline to the carers of the mental illnesses, but also, uh, for example, we can uh, help uh, because these are these brothers are adults. Uh, they uh, um, they might have uh, been admitted to different. Uh, uh, centers uh, uh, to stay uh, when they were little, uh, younger, but they were not uh, anymore. They, they um, live in a community. Could we provide more vocational uh, development, such as uh, like job assistance? Or uh, providing them uh, with skills uh, like workshop, or uh, do, uh, yeah, the, the skills to to work of, of at different settings, uh, so that they can uh, uh, you know like go back to the community, and then they will get more help as well in uh, in that case. Right, uh, self care is actually uh, very important. But um, in in a situation <laughs> like this, uh, Beslam, uh, the family is a grassroots family. I guess um, the seventy year old mother doesn't really know very much about um, caring for her two sons, but she tried her best. In in such situation, you mentioned about neighborhood schemes. Uh, can you tell us more? You know, how could um, a housing estate like Samo Peng? Uh, what sort of uh, schemes could they establish to help such families, hidden families, as we call them. Right. Uh, I think it's more like a, a psychoeducation to the wider community, not only those who are affected. Of course, uh, those who are affected, um, meaning having uh, family members having mental illnesses will be more interested uh, in joining uh, such as like stress reduction, psychoeducation about different uh, such as like inter intellectual disability, how to take care of them. And also uh, maybe like uh, they can uh, there could be more uh, peer uh, support groups like those members. Uh, family members, carers of um, in, uh, intellectual disability uh, people, they can join a group and then they can uh, set up like a, a, yeah, such a community can be very powerful and empower, uh, empowering, uh, giving them more uh, communal resources, uh, such as this case, maybe, uh, for example, if Although um, the mother was uh, is really old and um, may not reach out to psychoeducation or or some, something like that, but um, the the relatives of these uh, um, uh, two individuals could be uh, of ha uh, uh, give a hand as well to join uh, these uh, psychoeducation and uh, maybe like a case, social case uh, a case uh, worker can also provide individual psychoeducation to mother uh, carers like these so that they can get more. Um, resources uh, so when they need help they know that they need to um, they need to ask for help maybe the mother didn't know that there's such a need to get help from the others in these cases 
Right, and uh, Alex Lam on on the uh, on the issue of the two brothers being hospital authority patients, uh, but they have uh, missed their medical appointments. And earlier this year, in June, um, there was a seventy-five-year-old uh, woman who who was cancer, who had cancer, and she was bedridden. And because her carer, being the elder brother, had a fall in the bathroom, and so you know when the fire services found her, she was she was almost dead. So you know. These uh, these are HA patients, I guess, and uh, if they skip appointments nowadays in the system, uh, could some somebody flag an alert and um, at least call the family to see what's the issue and why the appointment was not um, attended to, or is it asking too much? Um, I, I cannot say for um, HA, um, but but I think um, we we all know that. Uh, a person with uh, intellectual disability, normally it is not reversible, and, and and in most of the cases it is for life. So if if the HA has such a patient that um, the patient defaults uh, medical appointment, um, yes, someone can be done, and the doctor or the medical staff man can make a phone calls to check whether they they uh, the reason why they default. Uh, or if um, they cannot reach the patient, then um, perhaps uh, the the um, uh, social worker can can um, um, you know make a visit to to see if they are being taken care of. Um, so we we in view of a case like this, uh, of course we we can um, um, fine tune the system and make sure that no one is left behind, uh, especially uh, if they have uh, some urgency. Um, so yes, if the system allows the doctor to to flag up this case and uh, refer to the, the case, default case um, to other people uh, to follow up, yes, it, it is better. Um, and uh, of course, um, a carer, uh, the the primary carer, uh, who is um, the carer of a, a intellectual disability a family member. Um, we we should uh, perhaps uh, put this uh, person um, into record that uh, whenever uh, this patient uh, is to be admitted, this carer is to be admitted to hospital for a period of time, then um, someone will look after uh, the case uh, as a social worker in the hospital to call up the family member to approach the um, the patient. Uh, if the patient still has the conscience, then yes, they can ask the patient. If not, then the, the, the social worker should approach the family members, see uh, if someone else is taking care of the, uh, the young children or the uh, mentally um, disabled uh, family member. Right. Um, Best Lam, do, do you think that uh, we, we have, um, you know, as many medical social workers as we could now have so that um, if we beef, beef up the system, there could be social workers contacting uh, patients um, and uh, checking on them and to see how they are. Because as our population ages, uh, these sort of tragedies might happen again. And so we have to think about um, different systems and networks to ensure that um, they they are taken care of. So, you know, if the carer himself or herself um, is sick, then the people that they take care of uh, usually uh, would need a lot of urgent help. Best Lam? Right. Uh, I, I think the uh, uh, now current system, um, they are still trying to read the, uh, the proper rate 
of caseworker to, uh, you know, those with uh, mental illness or professionals first uh, uh, to uh, like the ratio for how many that we need uh, to help uh, the, the people uh, like older people or the people with mental illnesses. Uh, there's a lot of things that uh, we can do, uh, but we cannot uh, only count on certain level of professionals such as doctors or social workers, but we need to um, probably uh, have like a um, like working together, uh, different centers working together so that uh, we can provide more resources to these uh, individuals, especially uh, these cases. So like um, what we have discussed this morning earlier, uh, that the a long-term development is uh, we could have like different uh, actually it's very important to uh, set up like a, a group uh, or a committee uh, by the uh, government for uh, if we want to do some social policy changes in order to beef up or to fine-tune the system is that we need to include different stakeholders we cannot just only include like social worker and or just the patients but we need professional social workers mental uh, yeah those with uh, who, who deal with um, uh, handle mental illnesses as well to discuss what's the best solution for these uh, situations or this phenomenon. All right, uh, Dr. Lam, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us uh, on the program this morning. That's uh, Bess Lam, Associate Professor at Xuyan University's Department of Counseling and Psychology. Many thanks also to Alex Lam, the Chairman of Patients' Voices. It's now uh, 9.42 and uh, in a moment we'll speak to an infectious diseases expert about the latest flu situation. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. A government pandemic advisor says the drop in summer flu cases has been faster than expected, but uh, people should still get jabbed for the upcoming winter flu season. David Ho also warned that the winter peak period could be more severe. Well, to discuss the latest flu situation, we're now joined on the line by epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Professor Cowling. Good morning, Janice. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, let's start with the summer flu season that uh, we're in right now. Um, any idea when we will reach its uh, peak? Well, hopefully we've just passed the peak. It's always a little bit difficult to say when you're really at the peak. But with hospitals having been very full for the last two weeks, hopefully that, that does signal that it's about, about the highest level. And we'll see the numbers coming down in the coming weeks. Right. And, and have children been affected the most by, by this uh, summer flu season? Uh, as with other flu seasons, it's, it's young children and older adults that bear the, the brunt of the severe cases. Uh, there have been a, a lot of hospitalizations. I know that pediatric wards have been fairly full in the last two weeks. And also a lot of older people have been admitted to hospital with flu, particularly those with other medical conditions as well that flu can exacerbate. So really, there's been a, a lot of flu about and it's the first really big flu season we've had for three years. Right. And how, how do you see this flu? I, I have some friends, uh, I mean, whose temperature shot up to over 40 degrees. And um, is that usual? Well, flu can be nasty in some people. And remember, we haven't had flu for three years. So that means over time, people have been gradually losing the immunity they might have had from from historical infections. And it's not a surprise that the impact of this season's a bit higher, that some people are getting slightly more severe infections. For other people, flu could be quite mild. It's, it's difficult to, to predict how flu is going to affect a, an individual person. But on average, we know it's not a surprise that there were some more severe cases this year. 
And uh, you just mentioned low immunity because uh, we, we just uh, came out of the uh, COVID pandemic. Um, what does this actually mean? Does it mean it's easier to get infected or are cases just uh, more severe? Uh, it's, it's a bit of both. So because we haven't had exposures to influenza for the last three years, you and me and everyone else in Hong Kong, uh, we haven't had that chance to get infected and, and build up our immune system and keep our immune system a little bit stronger. So that's a good thing that we haven't had flu for the last three years. But it's also not a surprise now that there's more infections than usual and they're a little bit more severe than usual. Uh, it, it, it's not a surprise. It was predicted actually by the experts earlier this year when there was discussion about whether or not we should relax the mask mandate uh, some other experts were saying we, we should never relax the mask mandate because as soon as we do, flu will come back and it'll be bigger than ever. And of course, the longer you hold off flu, the bigger it will come back eventually because that loss of immunity is a continuous process. So, so I, I think it's, it's been predictable. It was predicted and it's unfortunately happened, but hopefully the peak has passed. Right. And is a flu jab uh, still needed? Would it be effective for the winter well, definitely, flu? Definitely. That's right. So the, the next flu vaccination opportunities uh, are coming in October. The government's importing the next batch of flu vaccines for the coming year because you get flu vaccination once a year. And so at the moment, people are relying on, on vaccines they may have had almost a year ago. Um, when the vaccines become available in October, the recommendation is for, for everybody to consider getting it, uh, children and adults and, and particularly older people. Um, and I hope we'll see a, a good uptake of flu vaccine for the coming winter. As to whether the, the, this winter will have another big flu season, it's difficult to say. The fact that we've had a big flu season just now means maybe we'll, we won't have such a big flu season in the winter. But, but flu is very difficult to predict. So, I, you know, who, who knows? Maybe we will still have another big winter. And remember, in Hong Kong, flu can circulate at other times of the year as well. Right. And what's, what's the situation been like in other places? So other places relaxed their COVID measures before we did in Hong Kong, and they've had flu returning even a year ago. Typically, when flu has come back to other places, they've had bigger flu seasons as well. So that's another reason we could predict a bigger flu season here. Australia, um, a year ago, was having a big flu season across their country because they'd relaxed so much earlier than us. Uh, as for right now, I, I don't think that there's many places with large flu epidemics because it's it's neither the winter in the southern hemisphere or in the northern hemisphere. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm sure this winter there'll be a lot of flu circulating again in the northern hemisphere. And and what is the COVID situation? Because um, a number of people are still you know getting COVID now in Hong Kong. What? Well, uh, that's right. And I, I yeah. So I think if we if we tally up. For the year 2023, for this year, if we tally up how many people have been hospitalized because of COVID and how many people have been hospitalized because of flu, I suspect the COVID number will be larger. Um, and that's despite having a very large flu season just at the moment. Um, for the next year, for 2024, I, I would predict there'll be more COVID than flu. But then when we look at the booster uptake for flu, so we call the annual flu vaccination program, we could call it a booster program. Uh, for older people, about 40 to 50 percent of them will get that annual flu vaccine. But for COVID boosters, the uptake in the last year has been very, very low. And I think that that's a, that's a missed opportunity to prevent some of those severe COVID cases with booster doses. And hopefully in the coming winter, there'll be a, a big push to get older people to get their COVID boosters. 
So as the government is not releasing numbers these days, uh, so you and you say that the uh, case load uh, case number is probably quite high. Um, uh, are they mild cases or are there now more severe cases? Of COVID. With COVID? Yes. Well, there's a bit of both. I mean, I think that the thing with COVID is that it's typically mild, but it's not always mild. And when there's a lot of infections about, a small fraction of them can still be severe. Uh, one of the things we observe with reinfections is that if it's your second or third time getting COVID, it tends to be milder, but it's not necessarily always mild and it's not always that mild. And a lot of the people who get hospitalized with COVID haven't got pneumonia anymore. They're not having the severe COVID from earlier in the pandemic. They may be having an exacerbation of their heart disease or diabetes or other medical conditions. And so the COVID is what triggers the, the hospitalization, but they're, they're already in poor health. Um, and and that's, that's, uh, that's an issue not only with COVID, but with a lot of viral infections. So we, we do need a, another COVID booster if um, a booster comes along. The government hasn't announced it yet. Am I correct to say that? That's right. I expect there'll be another booster available in the coming winter. I hope the government will announce it soon, and I hope that they'll be able to give COVID boosters at the same time as they give flu boosters to get a higher uptake of COVID boosters particularly, because in the last year, the uptake's been a little bit disappointing. Right. What about other places? Are, are they getting their COVID boosters? No, around the world, that there's quite disappointing uptake of COVID boosters in, in the high-risk groups, which are really older people, particularly those with underlying, underlying medical conditions. It, similar picture to in Hong Kong, in other parts of the world, also maybe 5 to 10% booster uptake in the past year, uh, which is lower than, than it, it could be and lower than uh, we'd like because we know that the boosters can prevent more severe disease in, in vulnerable individuals. Right. Is, it, uh, is it common to have COVID and then the next week you have the flu? But that is not common. That okay. is not a common occurrence. And actually, I'll tell you, one of the observations in Hong Kong and elsewhere is that COVID epidemics and flu epidemics don't tend to occur on top of each other. And I'll tell you, for the last six months in Hong Kong, I think in April and May, we had a, a smaller flu epidemic. In the summer, we had COVID. COVID numbers are down to a very low level at the moment, but flu's up. And I wonder whether there's some kind of relationship that COVID steps aside when flu comes in and flu steps aside and COVID <laughs> comes back and so on. Maybe there's some, there's some underlying reason for that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking into it. But it's an interesting observation that they don't seem to coincide in, in their circulation patterns. Okay, but at least COVID is not um, that fatal anymore. Or how about the flu? Um, well, um, but both of them can still be nasty infections. That's the frustrating thing. With COVID, we were hoping that it would go milder and milder and milder. But that, that doesn't seem to be the case. Some people are still getting some more severe infections, some more severe hospitalizations. Um, and when, as I said, when we tally up for the year 2023, I suspect more people have ended up in hospital because of COVID than because of flu. Um, and, and I suspect more people have died because of COVID than because of flu in 2023. And of course, that, that's a year after we had the, the big fifth wave. Um, and I, I would predict for 2024, we might see a similar picture that COVID has a, a greater impact than, than flu on public health. Right. And, and earlier you mentioned uh, our, uh, you, you talked about our low immunity uh, or how our immunity is considered low at the moment. How long will it take for um, our immunity to, to return to normal levels? 
well, hopefully after this epidemic, then then uh, we'll have a little bit better immunity in the population as a whole. Hopefully we'll see good uptake of flu vaccines this winter, this autumn and this winter. And so hopefully that means that for the coming years, flu will be a little bit more back to normal, which is still at a high level. I mean, we'd prefer to have less flu. We'd prefer to see less people getting hospitalized with flu and dying of flu every year. And we know that vaccines can prevent that. But with with the current level of, of, of expectation of vaccine uptake for flu, we, we know what kind of disease burden to expect in the coming years. Well, for COVID, the whole world is not talking about it anymore. And um, everywhere I have traveled this year, people are not really wearing masks. But in Hong Kong, there's still a sizable number of people who still wear masks every day. So what what are your uh, thoughts on uh, prevention, um, apart from taking a booze, which, you know, might not be accepted by a number of people? What, what are other things that we should uh, think about? Well, sure. I'm, I'm glad that masks are now an individual choice and I'm happy to see that some people choose to wear masks. I'm also OK with other people not wearing masks. The one recommendation I would give to your listeners is to get some rapid tests, not only for COVID, but also for flu. You can either buy individual COVID tests and flu tests. So I think now in in Mannings and Watson's, they sell like double tests or triple tests or whatever for different viruses. If you can diagnose yourself early with either flu or COVID, actually we have antiviral drugs available in GPs, in doctors. You can go to the doctor and if you're diagnosed early enough, the antivirals can really help you to recover more quickly than you would otherwise do. And if you're vulnerable, if you've got some medical conditions, the antivirals could really do a lot of good in reducing your chance of getting hospitalized. And the way to get diagnosed as early as possible is to have a few of those rapid tests in your in your medicine box ready to go if you do come down with something. Because if you remember it a few years ago, you had to go to the doctor, maybe you had to wait for a test result to come back. Now you can do it instantly in your own home. I think those are fantastic that we have them available. And I would encourage everyone to, to just get a couple of them uh, to stock up. Right. And just finally, when, when do you expect the uh, peak of the uh, winter flu season uh, to take place? Well, I think the, the peak has hopefully just happened. Hopefully we'll see the numbers coming down. What about for the, the uh, winter, winter, uh, winter oh, for, the, for, the, for the winter? Well, this, this may be the, the, the largest peak that we have in, in this period of time. For the winter, it's always difficult to predict. Maybe by the time of Chinese New Year, when the winter turns colder in Hong Kong, maybe we'll see flu come back. We had H1N1 earlier this year. We're having H3N2 now. We haven't had a big influenza B epidemic yet since the COVID pandemic. So maybe it's the turn of influenza B, which can also be nasty. Um, so I, I'm on the lookout for what comes next. Uh, my prediction would be around the time of Chinese New Year, flu will be back. Uh, my, my guess would be influenza B and a, and a moderate to large season. All right. So, Professor Cowling, we have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us on the program. That's uh, epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong. And uh, let's now turn to the Asian Games in Hangzhou.
Next, when superstar Siobhan Hohe has won a gold medal in the women's 200-meter freestyle, bring the total number of gold medals for the Hong Kong team to three. And uh, to tell us more, we're now joined in the studio by our sports correspondent, Jamie Clark. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. Hi, Thanks. Hi. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. So um, it's uh, not her personal best time, but she still managed to grab a gold. Yes, not her personal best. That personal best actually came in the 200-meter freestyle final in Tokyo, where she got silver medal. Um, she won in 1 minute 53.92 seconds there. Uh, she does have the world record in this distance in a 25-meter pool, um, but of course at the Games they're using the Olympic-sized 50-meter pool. So yesterday she touched the wall just behind her best at 1 minute 54, but that was enough to win gold, almost two seconds ahead of the Chinese, the Chinese athlete, athlete in second, and it was an Asian Games record. So yeah, yesterday was another exciting day for Siobhan. She has three medals from her three events so far now. Um, and she still has five more disciplines to go. One on Friday, two on Thursday, one on Wednesday, and one today. That one today is in the 100 metres freestyle. So, yeah, she has a busy few okay. days coming up. <laughs> All right, that's the, the swimming part. What about uh, other events, uh, for example, a Rugby Sevens tournament? Uh, where's Hong Kong up to? Yeah, so the Rugby Sevens medal matches are today. Uh, the women's team are in a bronze medal match at 4.50 against Thailand. Uh, they started really well but lost to a really tough Japanese side in their final pool game. Um, they faced China in the semi-finals who have now scored 113 points and only conceded 14 so that was tricky. They faced Thailand like I said for the bronze medal. They've got a good chance of winning that. And the men's side who of course won gold in Jakarta in 2018 they will take on Japan in the semi-finals. That starts in about an hour and they actually faced Japan in that 2018 final and won by 14 points to nothing. So there's a good chance that they'll make that final again. Uh, the other semi-final is China versus South Korea. So watch that one for to see who we might reach in the All final. Right. All right. And just uh, very briefly, uh, today marks the start of uh, track cycling. Um, can we expect any medals for, for Hong Kong in this area? Cycling's an interesting one. In 2018, it was one of our mo most successful events with eight medals, a total of eight medals, cycling and fencing. Uh, we should caveat that by saying Li Wai Xie, who contributed to two of those golds and three, med three of those are medals overall, um, has retired. So she won't be competing, but there's still a strong chance for some medals for the remaining athletes. And just very briefly, what else should we watch out for today or tomorrow? Yeah, so we have the dressage today. Um, we we won a gold in 2018 and in the Olympics as well. Um, so look out for the dressage. Also, windsurfing. Yes, yeah, sorry, sailing. <laughs> the finals of the sailing are today. So Hong Kong's windsurfer Aoling Young came third in the Asian Championships last year. So he might be one to watch for another medal as well. All right. Thanks, Jamie. And uh, of course, Jamie will be here to give us an update on the Asian Games at the same time tomorrow. And uh, he'll do so for the entirety of the game. So remember to tune in. Many thanks again to all of you who commented or emailed us today. And of course, to our guest presenter, Ada Wong and producer Raphael. I'll be back with another edition of Backchat tomorrow with Jenny Lamb.